Well, so uh, this morning, how was your vision? There was a time, which I guess is many years ago now, that uh, if you had asked me, I would have told you that my vision is pretty good. At least until the afternoon when I was actually in the sixth grade, which makes it a very long time ago. But I was riding in the car somewhere with my family. I don't remember where we were going. It's on the 91 freeway at Riverside. I do remember that. And because it was before the days of seatbelts, I was uh, sitting in the back seat and looking up between where my mom and dad were sitting. And uh, we were looking for a particular off-ramp, trying to follow directions to some place we were going. Actually, I think it was Van Buren or Madison. I don't know why I remember that. But we were looking out through the windshield, and we're looking for this off-ramp, and finally I hear them say, well, there it is. To which I said, uh, where? And they said, well, right there. Can't you read the sign? To which I responded, well, of course not. It's too far away to read the sign. To which they responded, okay, so tell us when you can read the sign. Well, let's just say it was uh, quite a bit closer to the off-ramp before I was able to make out the letters. And it wasn't long after that that I found myself sitting in this odd chair looking through this weird ocular device with someone asking me over and over again, do you like this one or this one? This one or this one? Number one or number two? You know, many of you have been there and done that, and uh, as those of you have, who have been through that experience know, it can be an incredibly amazing thing the first time that you get a pair of glasses and you can see in ways that uh, you were never able to see before. It's incredibly amazing. In addition to that, though, because my glasses not only took care of my nearsightedness, which was fairly obvious to me by that point, there were also corrections that uh, my glasses had for astigmatism. And that was a little bit more disorienting for me for at least a little while. Until my eyes that had been so accustomed to seeing things in a distorted kind of way adjusted, there were things like the angles of walls and the slope of the ground that all just seemed really skewed to me. In fact, I can remember when I first got my glasses coming home for the first time and walking up on our porch towards the front door and reaching for the doorknob and it looked like the door was leaning away from me. It was just this odd kind of orientation. Well, fortunately, that didn't last very long, and uh, they tell me that they have ways of grinding lenses now that kind of helps minimize that effect for people who are getting them for the first time. But still, in spite of all of the strangeness about it, what a difference it made when my vision was corrected, and I could not only see the things that had been visible to me before, in ways that I had not seen them before, which was now in focus. But I was also starting to notice things that I would not even been aware of before. And that was really kind of cool. Vision, in my case, corrected clear vision over visibility. It's been the title of this sermon series we've been in for a week or so now. But just as important as seeing things clearly as what it is that we focus our vision on once we are seeing. Last week, using the imagery uh, of Hebrews chapter 12, Pastor John reminded us about uh, a race that we've been invited to participate in, a race in which we are 
urged to run. He talked about how we can get weighed down and worn out by the things that sometimes cling to us or that we try to take along with us, or sometimes distracted by those who may be running along nearby someplace for lots of different reasons. But that what mattered the most is where we fixed our eyes, where our vision was focused, and that with our eyes focused there, that we kept on running. I'd like to invite you just to go back to that passage with me for just a little bit this morning as we begin. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them there. We'll be there for just a little bit. And that's to Hebrews chapter 12. Just listen to these words again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. This, as we noticed last week, was the key to running the race well, or perhaps the key to making sure you're even in the right race at all. Uh, You know, it's not at all unusual to run into people who are passionate and committed about their religious convictions and who have no problem at all running right over the top of you as they're pursuing them. Some of you can even show the tread marks where that's taken place in your life, I'm sure. People who are running with their eyes clearly fixed on something, but not Jesus. But as we noticed last week, it's as we fix our eyes on Jesus that we can see not only what it is that we're trying to reach, the goal towards which we're running, but we also get some pretty good insights into what it means to run well. You might say that Jesus is not only what we fix our eyes upon, but that Jesus is actually the lens that we look through that brings our vision back into clear, sharp focus once again. Well, the passage continues like this. Start again with verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. And so as we look through this lens, which is Jesus, not only do we see more clearly what it means to run well and the real goal towards which we're running, but this text also suggests that there's a significant part of how our vision is corrected that takes place when we view Jesus in the context of the cross. There's something about seeing Jesus there, who, this passage says, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. And then in verse 3, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. And so to milk my illustration for all that it's worth this morning, and uh, apologies to ophthalmologists who may be cringing through this whole thing this morning, you might say that uh, just as focusing our eyes on Jesus provides the corrective lenses we need to bring God fully into focus, it may also be that seeing Jesus, particularly in the context of the cross, 
provides that extra added correction for our spiritual stigmatism, those distortions that we have grown up with and have become so ingrained in our lives, which when corrected in the light of the cross might make us feel a bit disoriented for a little while, at least until God's spirit helps our eyes to adjust to what it is that we see. In fact, the realization that seeing things in the light of the cross is so important is one of the reasons that churches all around the world during this time of year, every year, take several weeks to actually do that, to look at the life and ministry of Jesus as it leads up to the cross, as they anticipate the celebration of Easter weekend. And that's also the reason why we've been spending some time these last couple of weeks talking about it as well. All of which then brings us to what we're talking about this morning, the cross. The cross. What do we do with the cross? It's a symbol that we see frequently. You see it in architecture around churches. Sometimes you see it uh, embroidered into or silk screened on clothing. Oftentimes it's worn by people around their neck. Thanks to Christian marketing and bookstores, you see the cross in just about every setting you could possibly imagine. Makes good money to uh, get the cross out there. It's a symbol that probably more than any other symbol over the past 2,000 years has come to identify the followers of Jesus. When you see the cross, you think of Christians. And yet it may be that it's also a symbol that has become so familiar to us and with which we've become so comfortable that we no longer fully grasp just what it means for that cross to become the symbol that identifies us. In fact, I wonder sometimes if somebody were to ask us just what it is that we would say this morning, if there was a phrase or an idea or a symbol that might capture and express well what it is that we're all about or who we really are down at the core of our being if it would be the symbol of the cross that we would think about. I suspect that for many of us, it would be the phrase that appears on your bulletin this morning and that is usually hanging on these banners in the front of the church, loving God, loving people, which is certainly appropriate and actually a very powerful statement in what it conveys, certainly has the endorsement of Jesus. But how does a statement like that fit with this image of the cross? How does the cross, like a good pair of corrective lenses, help us to read and to live that statement so that it stays in focus and so that we don't distort it? I also kind of suspect that if we really thought about it for very long this morning, that question of what really motivates us and drives us on the most deepest levels in our lives that probably the most honest thing that we could say is that the answer to that is complicated because we're complicated. Sometimes we are pushed and pulled by all kinds of different pressures and concerns and stresses. It's like we have these multiple focal points in our life that we're constantly trying to revolve around and they don't all line up. And so we can find our lives wobbling a bit now and then. And even when we're trying our best to stay focused and move in the right direction, we discover that we do at times drift off course. So how does viewing things in the context of the cross 
not only help us to see things in focus, but actually also speak to this reality that we struggle with all of the time, the distractions and the ways that we slip out of focus or find our lives wobbling a bit or our feet stumbling as we run. How does the cross do that? Well, I suppose that maybe one of the best ways to find out is simply to do what Hebrews 12 suggests that we do. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. And then in verse 2, him who endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then finally at the end of verse 3 again, you do all of this so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. And as we do that, as we consider Jesus in the context of the cross, one of the things we notice is how Jesus takes this symbol of the cross, one of the most horrible and cruel inventions ever devised, the worst kind of torture that we can imagine, and completely transforms it into a symbol of hope and grace. We'll leave it to others this morning to detail the brutal and cruel nature of what it meant to actually suffer on a cross. Except to say that crucifixion was one of the ways that Rome enforced its rule. It was a very useful tool to the empire. It was how they established what was called the Pax Romana of the time, the Peace of Rome. See, under the rulership of Caesar, many nations and people were all brought together into one empire, under one umbrella. And under Caesar, there was, throughout the known world, peace. A kind of peace that Brian McLaren comments about like this. Let me just share with you what he writes. And how is the Pax Romana enforced? By the threat of swift, horrible, lethal torture on a cross if anyone questions Rome's supremacy. A threat that was graphically dramatized on many a roadside entering major cities throughout the empire. And that is where you would see the crosses set up on the roads as you entered the cities with anyone who questioned the authority of Rome nailed there so that people understood exactly what it meant if you defied the emperor. Peace through overwhelming force and dire consequences for anyone who dared stand in the way. That is what the cross was about. That was the symbol. At least that's what it was about until Jesus got a hold of it and dramatically transformed the meaning. And he did it not by blasting it off the hill on which it stood, but by doing what no one would ever have dreamed or expected that anyone would do. He did it by taking it up and willingly going there himself. What Jesus did is so counterintuitive and ran so much against the conventional wisdom of this day, and frankly, against much of what passes for conventional wisdom in our day, that it is no great wonder that even the disciples didn't get it until after the crucifixion weekend. 
You see, according to the Romans, what it took to lead, what it took to be in power, what it took to instill and establish peace was a strong military, the rule of law, strict enforcement. And there were Jews who in principle agreed with the Roman approach and who also wanted to use force in their resistance to Rome. They would have been just as happy to do the same to them, to drive them out and to get their kingdom back. They were known as the Zealots. In fact, Jesus even chose a disciple from among people with that conviction. For them, one of the greatest moments of clarity in the ministry of Jesus would have been when Peter finally drew his sword at the arrest of Jesus and took action. It was about time someone did that. And one of their greatest moments of bewilderment would have been when Jesus told Peter to put it away and then heal the servant that Peter had injured just before he allowed himself to be arrested. It didn't make sense. What's more, the Jewish understanding of what it took to lead not only included a victorious Messiah at the head of a huge army, but also one who would miraculously provide for all of their needs, make sure they had no wants. We touched on this a couple weeks ago when we uh, noticed the Jews seeking a sign from Jesus when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and looked at John chapter 6. But interestingly enough, it comes up again in a slightly different context in Matthew 12. Listen to how it comes up here. Matthew 12, beginning with verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. To which Jesus answers in verse 39, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He tells them the sign that they're looking for is not the sign they're going to get. You see, when people look through the lenses that Jesus is crafting, the correction to their vision is initially so disorienting, it is so disturbing, that they often assume that the problem must be with the lenses. It can't possibly be what Jesus is actually saying which is why Peter in one breath can be proclaiming him as the son of God, and in the next breath trying to talk Jesus out of this crazy idea he had about going to Jerusalem and dying there. It didn't make sense. Paul talks about it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And please notice here, this is not an indictment against education or careful, clear, accurate thinking. It's rather a statement about how conventional wisdom is often frustrated by the way that God actually operates when we see God's wisdom at work. He goes on in verse 22 to say, Jews demanded miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom 
and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It's vision over visibility. You see, as counterintuitive and even disorienting as it first may seem, when you look through the lenses that Jesus supplies, what we see changes in some pretty dramatic ways. The cross does not cease to be what it was. It was still a cruel and inhuman form of suffering, much worse than anything that we can imagine. But the power that it had and the view of reality that it represented has completely subverted and broken by what Jesus does. It is replaced by something far greater and far more amazing. Well, so what is it then? What is it that we see then as we look at Jesus on the cross, as we consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, who endured this cross despising the shame? Well, that's what I'd like to encourage you to discover this week as we lead up to Easter weekend. I'd like to encourage you to slip on the lenses that Jesus has crafted for us here and to consider him in the context of those final hours. I'd like to invite you to consider him as he shares what is on his heart with his disciples in the upper room, as he shares this meal with people that he loves and who loves him, with the full knowledge as he is doing so, that the one that he is sharing with is the one that is going to betray him, and yet without the slightest hesitation, he does it anyway. He was fully aware of the desire of the disciples to follow him, and yet he was also aware that there were forces in their lives that were going to cause them to stumble and to fail, and he reassures them anyway. He still gives them words of hope and assurance. I would encourage you to consider him as he makes the difficult, lonely choices in Gethsemane where he longed for people to be close by him as he struggled and wound up having to do it alone, where he opted for vision over visibility. I would encourage you to consider him as he refuses to participate in the political spin machine, as his character and his words and his actions were misrepresented and maligned by people who knew far well exactly what they were doing. Consider him as he stands before Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, men who were pursuing religious and political agendas that were very different than his. Consider him in the conversation with Pilate, the one who was actually the one who would give the official decree or the official pronouncement that would send him to his death. And listen to the way he continues to speak with grace and offers compassion. I would encourage you to consider him physically beaten and weakened to the point that he could not carry the weight of his own cross, making that long, painful walk to Golgotha, and doing it not angry or bitter over the unfairness or the injustice that he was experiencing, but purposely carrying and absorbing into himself all of the unfairness and all of the injustice that the world had offered or could ever offer on behalf of those who had both experienced it all 
and those who had perpetrated it all. I would encourage you to consider him hardly able to breathe in a kind of pain that we can't even phantom, speaking to the people around him. For those carrying out his execution, there is a reflection of his compassion and love as he forgives and as he prays for their forgiveness. To the one being executed next to him for crimes that he actually did commit, there are gracious words of hope and the assurance that what he can't see is far more real than what he can. And even in the midst of everything that is going on around him, he speaks to his mother and the Apostle John, knowing how important it's going to be for them that they are there for each other in the days and weeks that are coming. And for himself, lest you should be tempted to see here only the image of a superhuman hero that we can't possibly relate to. There are words that reflect the genuinely authentic humanness of his experience. I am thirsty. Why, God, do I feel so forsaken? And finally, grasping for the realization that he had both lived and done what he had come to do, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And as we consider him, especially there, and as we look at the God who is revealed there, not through the Roman lenses of the cross, which saw it as a symbol of the price you pay for disobeying the will of Caesar, but through the lenses of the cross as Jesus shaped them, where it becomes a symbol of love and grace, of a God who willingly suffers the worst that sin can do, absorbing it all into himself, so that it no longer needs to be the force in our lives that compels or drives us. See, Jesus suffered the worst of the death that sin sought to bring about in our lives so that we can be free to live the life that he seeks to bring about in us. In the death of Jesus, we see the full extent to which evil is willing to go to destroy, but we also see the extent to which God is willing to go to extend grace and to offer life. See, the death of Jesus is not about a stern God who in justice is exacting a penalty. It's about an amazing God of justice who is setting us free to live. This is not God taking it out on Jesus, but God through Jesus embracing all of the pain and suffering in the world and in the process embracing us as well. This is not the contradiction of everything that Jesus taught and lived. It is the culmination of it. See, Jesus transforms the cross into a symbol of the love and graciousness of God who continues to genuinely embody that love and grace even in the face of the worst that sin and evil could possibly do. The cross reminds us that now, because of the way Jesus has handled it, there is nothing that has happened to us or has been done to us or that we have done that God has not already experienced in all of its fullness at the very core of who he is 
And none of that has in any way changed his amazing love and grace towards us, towards all of us. And that is modeled not only through the entire ministry of Jesus, but even down to the last moments of life on the cross. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we're invited to consider him, to see with corrected eyesight in the light of the cross, and even more challengingly, to respond to what we see. We're invited to experience vision over visibility. Not only in what we see as we look to him, but in how we are to live in response to what we see. For we too are invited to follow. Jesus does then invite us to take up our own cross and to live as he did. And there's a lot more we could say about that and what that means. We'll leave that for another time. But the last phrase of verse 3 of Hebrews 12 reminds us that one of the reasons we need to consider Jesus there in that light is so that we do not grow weary and to not lose heart. It's the realization that no matter what comes my way or perhaps even how I might lose my way, whatever form of the cross I may experience, I no longer need to fear it because Jesus has already been there and he is still the same. It's vision over visibility. However much of Friday we may experience, we don't need to grow weary or lose heart because Sunday morning is still assured. It is still assured. And so this week, I'd like to invite you to do just what the text invites us to do, to consider him, to consider him. Father in heaven, we honestly can't even imagine or wrap our minds around what it cost you and what it meant for you to fully absorb into yourself all of the worst that sin and evil could do in our world. And nor do we have a very good grasp of the richness of the gift that you have given to us and the life that you have promised and in the hope and grace that you extend. But we would like to respond this morning. We pray that this morning and this week, as we consider you and as we continue to look to you, that you would continue to correct our eyesight, that you would help us to see clearly, to respond well, and to live in a way that honors you. It's our prayer this morning in Jesus' name.